I'm quite concerned today about time and running out of time, so let's get moving. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. Our message is divided into three points. First, point one is introduction. We're looking at verses one through three. This introduction to 1 Corinthians is very Pauline. It's very normal, very similar to many of Paul's other introductions. It starts with these words, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul starts off by naming himself as the author, a little bit about his background, and he mentions Sosthenes, this guy who's with him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he continues with verse 2, verse 1 saying who he is, and verse 2 saying who he's writing to. So he's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, under this introduction, point number one, we also have a slide for this, hopefully. So, we have point one, Paul. Paul, called by God to be an apostle. Called by God to the apostleship. Sorry. If you spend much time walking around, particularly upper Manhattan, you will see a lot of churches that say, apostle so-and-so on their sign. Paul is not one of those apostles. See, Paul is called by God. He is not self-appointed. He is not imagining this calling. Paul is truly called by God. His call to the apostleship is not a thing of self-appointment. It is not self-motivated. It is not self-willed. But God truly appeared to him, spoke to him. The resurrected Christ appeared to him. Paul meets the standard of an apostle. He has the authority of an apostle. He is given by God not only power to perform the occasional sign and wonder, but he also has the authority to write scripture. And those are essential characteristics of an apostle. This is why it is important to clarify that this apostleship is not his own invention. It is not something that he sought out for himself. It is not something he gave to himself or crowned himself an apostle. No, he was called an apostle by God. Now, beyond our modern applications for this, why would Paul mention this in the first century? Why would Paul point this detail out? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you see a reference to some super apostles. Well, what is a super apostle? Well, a super apostle is a self-appointed, self-called, self-willed apostle who is very critical of Paul. What makes a super apostle a super apostle? Well, they're self-righteous, they're super-powered, they have the ability to perform certain things, but we're not certain exactly where the power comes from. Well, we have some ideas, but we don't think it's the Holy Spirit. 
They're self-appointed and self-motivated. These super apostles are full of self. They are not full of Christ. When you look at the false apostles, you, you see a whole lot of self. You see that person lifted up. But when you look at a true apostle, you see a lot of Christ. You see a weak man, but a mighty savior. Not a super apostle, but a super savior. So I believe this is why Paul clarifies and and states this up front. He, writing the letter, his name is Paul, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. I didn't put me up to this. This is not my idea. I'm not here bothering y'all because I want to. No. God called me and sent me and appointed me to this mission. Now, the next part of this point B is Sosthenes. Now, who is Sosthenes? Verse 1b, he is not mentioned in Paul's other letters, but in all likelihood is the man mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, which says, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. That's Acts 18, 17, if anyone's taking notes. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, a Jewish guy, head of a synagogue, who ended up getting beaten for him being tied up with Paul. So I'm not a biblical scholar, but by my math, that sounds like the sort of guy who would probably be this guy. So assuming that is him, then that means he not just got beaten, but he also got converted to Christianity. Now, why is Sosthenes mentioned right here in the opening part of this letter? In all likelihood, it is that Paul has, well, we know Paul has a number of health issues and he has been beaten and gone through all sorts of horrible experiences. He always travels with a team. Wherever he goes, he has a team. But beyond that, he always has someone helping him write his letters. It's possible that he had eyesight issues. He definitely had issues after being beaten within an inch of his life multiple times. So I believe that Sosthenes was quite possibly Paul's scribe in writing this particular letter. So Paul is dictating to Sosthenes, telling him what to write, and so he writes it. If you want your vocab word for the day, what we would call Sosthenes is an amanuensis. Amanuensis. I will spell that for you. A-M-A-N-U-E. N, sis, S-I-S, amanuensis, a scribe, personal scribe, personal secretary, amanuensis, just a a person who takes dictation and writes letters and things. So that is Sosthenes, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, which brings us into point three, Corinth, the city, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. We'll talk about the church of God at Corinth in a moment, but for now, we're going to talk about Corinth, the city. So let's go to our next slide, which should have a map. So where are we? This is the Mediterranean Sea. You've got the north of Africa right there. Off to the far right, you have Israel. North of that is Turkey, then Greece, Italy, around to Spain. So you should be very familiar with this map. Uh, And if you're not, you should get very familiar with it because this is where most of 
the Bible takes place. Now, right in the center of the map, we see Italy. To the right of that is Greece. You can go to the next slide. There we have zooming in on Greece, and we are going to be zooming in even more. So go to the next slide. So this is the bottom part of Greece. You have Corinth with the tag there, and then Athens off to the right. Corinth, you notice, is at this narrow area um, that we would call an isthmus. You can go to the next slide. So Corinth is where the green arrow is, and this narrowing area, the isthmus, is um, a, a funneling area where if you're trying to go, you can go back to the previous slide, if you're going from the mainland of Greece to this Peloponnesus of the, the part where the word Corinth is, you're going to have to pass through that narrow passageway. So it's this natural land bridge is what it was commonly referred to as, which means a lot of traffic and trade is going through this, um, this intersection, basically. So you can go back to the, go forward, there we go. And, there we go. And um, you see ancient Corinth with the green arrow, and then uh, it is roughly 2.9 miles be- from ancient Corinth to the water, where the yellow arrow is. So it's pretty close, very close to the water, and um, in the, the red arrow points to a canal that was built so that ships could pass from the Corinthian Gulf to the other Gulf on the other side. But that canal was built in the 1890s. Now, from 600 BC, kings and rulers were trying to build this canal because it would save hundreds of miles off of their shipping journeys and it would save them from having to do these very, very uh, unsafe shipping passages to go around the peninsula. And so they were trying to do this, but instead what they ended up with was sort of a, uh, a bridge across where they would put boats on wheels, basically, and push them up over. And I believe that's what the black line is for, uh, that is right there. That kind of has a, a, a swing in it, like a, an arc. And, um, so there would have been these rollers that they basically put boats on and then push them up over the land. Cause it was still better to do that than to go around the Southern part of Greece. You can go to the next slide. That's what it looks like, uh, in 2017. And you can go to the next slide. This is the Um, the Acropolis at Corinth. So if you remember two slides ago, there is Corinth and then there's Acrocorinth. Acrocorinth is the Acropolis of Corinth, which is this mountain which would have had uh, a temple on top of it in the ancient times. You can go to the next slide. And this is from the ruins of Corinth, the Bema seat, the judgment seat where Paul was tried. And that is described in Acts chapter 18. You can go to the next slide. That is also the Bema seat right there in the middle, that square box area, and then the Acropolis in the background. You can go to the next slide. And this is a video. So we'll watch this real quick. You turn it, turn it down because it's about to get real loud. Chapter 18, when um, 
the Jews were angry and they dragged him there to have a trial. And um, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, was there. He judged the uh, situation and he said basically, Paul is not breaking the law. You deal with him yourself because it's just a matter of traditions. Um, so that would have taken place at that, that place right there. Uh, on top of the mountain, right there, is where um, they would have had the temple with uh, a thousand prostitutes back um, maybe a couple centuries before the time of Christ, but it still created such a notorious culture in this area that the name Corinthian um, meant to be a very immoral person. This road was here when in the first century, so that's the road that Paul would have walked on for sure. Somewhere around here is the ancient synagogue that um, Paul preached at, and that was where he got thrown out and went next door to a house owned by Titus Justice, who converted to Christ as well as one of the leaders of the synagogue and then his family. And then the text says in Acts 18 that many Corinthians believed and were baptized. And then that was the church that First and Second Corinthians uh, was written to. Okay, so then that's a view of the main main street, basically, through Corinth, and a lot of shops on the right and left side of the road. This um, These archaeological ruins are fairly well preserved, and f- as far as archaeology goes, they're fairly well dug up, but it's still only a fraction of what's available to be dug, so maybe 10% of what is there that could be dug, because um, basically everything from here to the mountain could be dug up and they would find lots of interesting things between there. So you can go to the next one. And this is the Erastus inscription, which was discovered in 1829. The uh, inscription dates from the middle of the first century and says, Erastus, in return for his adileship, laid the pavement at his own expense. The word adileship is basically him being a city officer. He was elected as this ruler or um, a person in charge of public works, such as the water system and the streets and, you know, just taking care of things. He was elected. And then upon that, he said, I'm going to personally pave this road out of my own pocket. This man is mentioned in Romans chapter 16 as the city treasurer, Erastus, the city treasurer. So um, I put the box around the word Erastus. Um, On the far right side, there's an S that's somewhat visible to the left of that is a V. Um, v is U, and then there's a T to the left of that, then an S to the left of that, and the um, the R is visible there. The E is kind of cut off on the far left. Anyway, um, that's a very interesting spot to see as well. Um, you go to the next slide. There we are. So, Corinth, the city. Corinth is uh, in a very strategic location on the isthmus between Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It is a bridge of Greece. It is between the northern and southern regions of Greece. And so it is in a vital location. It's sort of like midtown Manhattan. You know, if you're going to get from Brooklyn to Queens and you're taking the train, you're going to have to go through this midtown area. That same type of idea. Uh, It is also a center for paganism and sensuality. The temple to Apollo was there. We didn't, I didn't post any pictures of that because it's not 
super relevant for this message, but um, the temple to Apollo, uh, the temple to Aphrodite, who's on top of the mountain with a thousand female prostitutes on the Acropolis. And um, it is a major center for trade, a center for bronze and bronze working, a center for leather leather workers and tent makers. You remember Paul being a tent maker? Well, well that's where that happened. Aquila and Priscilla with their tent making trade, that was there. A center for economics. It has been said that Corinth is similar to New York or London, that if Athens was similar to Boston for being an intellectual center, an education center, then Corinth is similar to New York or London being a center for business and commerce and trade and entertainment. It was also the home of the Isthmian Games, which took place twice a year. So, very, very busy, very major city, also very notorious for its immorality and wickedness. To be called a Corinthian was not a nice word. It was not a nice thing to be called because of their open, flagrant immorality and their reputation. Now, this brings us into point D, Corinth, the church. The church in Corinth, planted by Paul during his second missionary journey and described in Acts 18 and 19, roughly between the years 49 and 52 AD. Now, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is written around 53 to 54, so just a couple years later while Paul is in Ephesus. So Paul plants the church in Corinth, then he carries on, and then he hears word that there are very serious problems at this church, so he writes this letter back to them. This church, which had significant problems, is nevertheless called saints in verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So this church, they are called saints, even though they are, they have issues. Also, please note that this local church, the church of Corinth, is a local church in union with the universal church. They are called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he's saying that you, the body of Christ here in Corinth, call on the same Savior as everybody else who is a Christian all across the world. You don't have a special religion going on here. You're not special. It's the same religion. You don't get special exemptions just because you're Corinthians. Did you know when I first moved to New York and I started meeting some of the movers and shakers of Manhattan evangelicalism, I realized these people literally believe that because we are in New York and we are New Yorkers, that there is a special kind of Christianity here that doesn't need to be so Bible-oriented as what is found elsewhere, such as the South or the Bible Belt. These words in verse 2 that say that we are together with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord should instruct us that we do not have the liberty to make up this religion as we go along. The idea of having a unique theological vision for each church plant that is separate from church to church, from neighborhood to neighborhood, is foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. I wish Omar was here. Is Omar here? I don't see him. He would give me an amen because he knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) Thank you. 
This idea of theological vision is a contextualized term for basically saying, look, if you're in a progressive neighborhood, then your Christianity needs to be a bit more progressive. If you're in, a, in, in the West Village, then it's okay if your Christianity has a bit more of a rainbow flavor to it. These things are not true. There is one Christian religion given by God through his son Jesus Christ to the apostles, preserved, passed on through established local churches for 2,000 years. We are part of the same body of Christ, the same universal church. As all believers and all saints are everywhere. And then this introduction closes in verse 3 with a word of blessing. Grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very classic Pauline structure. This brings us to our next point, our next slide as well. Thankful for you. Again, very common in Paul's writing to give a word of affirmation, a word of of thankfulness, and even a prayer, and that's what this is. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterances and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift." eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please recognize, you who know anything about 1 Corinthians, you know that 1 Corinthians is a letter written to address problems in the Corinthian church, and these problems in the Corinthian church were more serious than any problem in any church that you or I have ever heard of or been a part of. These were huge problems. But don't let that cloud your reading of these words. Paul is not lying. He is not being sarcastic. He is being genuine when he says, I thank my God always concerning you. He means it. He means it when he is saying that he is thankful to God for these people. He doesn't secretly despise them. Though they have many faults and many failures and many sins, he loves them and he is thankful for them. And his thankfulness for them, however, it takes a specific shape. And the shape of that love and the shape of that thankfulness is described below. And I have a couple points. Thankful for the grace given to you. First off, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ. Paul is thankful to God for the grace that was given to these people. Well, why is that? Well, ask yourself and ask the text, where would those people be if not for that grace? Well, the same place any of us would be, if not for that grace. They would be lost. 
They would be dead in their trespasses and sins. They would still be hell-bound, condemned sinners. And so Paul, when he thinks of this church in Corinth, he is thankful to God for them because the grace of God has been revealed to them. He was the one who brought it there. He preached to them the gospel of the free grace of Jesus Christ given to cleanse them and to wash them and to purify them. The means of this grace which has been given to them, the means is the person of Jesus Christ, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Secondly, he is thankful that they were enriched with the riches of Christ. Verse five, that you were enriched in everything by him, by Jesus, in all utterance and all knowledge. These saints, these Christians, not only have received grace to convert them, grace to save them, but also grace to gift them for their service of the body, to serve one another. Keep in mind, at this point, they don't have, uh, you know, these nice um, Cambridge edition leather-bound Bibles that they can just flip open and read quite easily. No, they, they don't have that kind of access. So what's happening? Well, the Holy Spirit is filling different members of the body in unique ways, in ways that took place during the time of the apostles, so then they can give these words of exhortation, words of wisdom, words of prophecy. And these things are genuine in their life. And Paul is thankful for these gifts of grace that are evidence evidenced in their lives. Thirdly, he is thankful for their growth. We see that in verses six through nine. Even as the testimony of God was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this is describing the way in which they are growing. So the testimony is confirmed. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. It's not just an empty word, but it is a word that is confirmed as true. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got a bit of information. You're like, oh, that's nice. You know, when I first met Trenton, he's like, oh, I can sing. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Can we confirm this testimony, please? And then he sings. I'm like, okay, he can sing. The testimony is confirmed. So there is a testimony given about these people, and then that testimony that these people have received grace and have been saved by Christ, that testimony is confirmed. And then you see in verse 7, you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're growing in their exercise of these gifts. And then beyond that, they're looking for the return of Christ, which might sound odd to us because we're looking 2,000 years after the fact and saying, well, he hasn't come yet. 
But the idea of eagerly waiting for the return of Christ is a basic element of Christian orthodoxy. And if anyone tells you that that's not the case, you should tell them to stop listening to Gary DeMar. Because we are looking for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are anticipating his actual bodily return, as well as a bodily resurrection where we will rise from the dead. And these Christians in Corinth recognize that and they're eagerly waiting for Jesus's return. Beyond that, Paul is also thankful and assured that these people, these Christians, will be preserved to the end. Verse 8 says, who will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is that going to happen? The only way that will happen is because of the work of Christ himself. Jesus will keep his own. He will preserve his people. And he will preserve them. And he can preserve them even in a place like Corinth. And he can do that even in a place like New York. Now, do not be confused. There still are apostates and things like that. But what we recognize from other passages of scripture, such as the parable of the four soils, is that there are people who sprout up and they seem to be Christians for a time, but then they fall away. And the reason they fall away is because they have no root in them. That root being that true life. So those who are the Lord's, those who are saved, will be kept by him. He will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are Christ's, you can be assured and be confident that that day that the Lord returns and you stand before him, the day that you die and you stand before him, he will look at you and he will see you as spotless and as blameless as Jesus himself. And so you can have confidence when you're swinging out into eternity on that thread which is Christ himself knowing that for God the Father to reject you, who are trusting in him and resting in him and hoping only in him, for God to reject you would require him to reject his own son. And that will never happen. Now, how can we be so sure? Well, he, he, he presses in even further with verse 9. God is faithful. by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. The fact that you're going to make it to, to heaven someday is not because you are good, not because you are faithful, but because God is faithful and God keeps his promises. And the, the resurrection of Christ was accepted by God the Father and it vindicates the payment that was made by Jesus, and that guarantees your acceptance into heaven for those who trust in him. The faithfulness of God is our assurance. Now, if you are here today and you do not know that, you do not know what in the world I'm talking about, I am truly delighted that you're here today. I am so glad that you've come here today and that you have the opportunity to hear the message of salvation because this is the issue of all issues. This is far more important than anything that is happening on TV or the news. 
The issue is you're going to die someday. The death rate's 100%. You're going to die someday and you're going to stand before God and he's going to look at you and be like, all right, what you got to say for yourself? And if you're coming in saying, well, you know, I did some good things and I did some bad things and I just really would like to go to heaven, please. Okay, well, what is the merit of your access? What is the basis of you coming in? Say, well, I volunteered at the Bower Mission. Um, gave some money to PBC a couple times. I didn't kill anybody. I think I was a pretty good person. Provided for my family. You know, overall a pretty decent guy. So I, I hope that my good works outweigh my bad works and that you will let me into heaven. I'm here to tell you that that's not good enough. The Bible says that all your righteousness are as filthy rags. So when you come into the, the presence of God to try to, to pay your own way in, to try to say, hey, look, I've got these good things that I did. I'm telling you, those good things that you did are tainted by you, the one who did them. Think with me about an illustration of uh, pirates. So you have in medieval days, or you've got like kings and such, and they've got their naval, their, their, their navies and their boats and everything, and that there is a captain of a pirate ship who, who comes to the king, and he's like, look, I've decided that I've done all the wrong things, and I'm going to try to be reconciled to you, and I've got all these things that I did. And the king looks at him and says, oh, that's really nice, but the problem is you did all those things as a pirate. You did all of those things as my enemy. So we, in our sin, in our nature, we are on the other side doing the things that we do, doing the, the, committing the sins that we commit. We are doing them on behalf of team Satan. So you think you're going to stand before God and say, look, I did all these things, all these things to exalt myself and to make myself feel good and look good and be elevated in the sight of the world. And God will look at you and be like, that's filthy rags. You need some perfect righteousness and you don't have any. Not to mention your family lineage. You're here in Adam. Your father, Adam, who sinned as your representative. Is there by chance someone else who is willing to stand in your place, who actually has some righteousness to offer? Oh, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a problem. So that's why I'm explaining this to you today, to let you know that there is a substitute available. There is a perfect man available. His name is Jesus Christ. And he has made the payment for all who would ever come to him that you can be forgiven. That you can stand before God with an alien righteousness, an external righteousness that is credited onto your account in a legal judicial sense so that one day when you stand before God and he's like, all right, are you in or out? Well, and you're like, I don't have any good deeds, but Jesus did. And whatever the courts of system, the court, the court system of heaven looks like, they say, yeah, that's the right answer. Because God has appointed a day to judge the world, and he will judge the world by the standard of one man, and that man is Jesus Christ the righteous. The only thing that matters is, are you in him? Or are you in Adam? 
Are you in yourself, in your own virtue or lack thereof? And if you're in him, you're coming under that banner of Jesus Christ and you're trusting in him as your substitute, then you can be assured that you will be granted access to heaven. Now, how do you get that? How do you get that forgiveness of your sins? You call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. You trust in him, repent of your sin, turn from trusting in yourself and your own righteousness and trust only in Jesus as your only hope in life and in death. And you're saved. You're forgiven. This is the core of the gospel that Jesus lived and died and rose again for our sins. And I would urge you that if you have not taken that seriously, if you have not looked at Christ as your only Savior and turned from trusting your own works, that today would be the day that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, for those of you who have done that, you have trusted in Jesus, you are saved, you have been baptized and brought into the membership of this church, and you are part of this body. I, with the Apostle Paul, want to say I am thankful to God for you. I am thankful for the grace that God has given to you through the means of Jesus Christ because I know that without Christ, you would be, you, the members of PBC, would be just as lost as those Corinthians were before they came to Christ. And I personally, Andy, am thankful that you have been enriched in the riches of Christ and they are evident. They're obviously in your lives. I see them. I see your growth in Christ. You who have been here for one year, I can review your baptism testimony videos and I see the way you kind of clumsily explained yourself and versus the way you are today and I recognize the marks and fruit of Christ on you. And I am so thankful and so encouraged by that. I'm thankful for your growth. I am thankful that this testimony which you have given has been confirmed and that you are growing in your gifts and that you are looking for the return of Christ and that you will be preserved to the end and you are even growing in your assurance of that very fact. I am thankful to God for you. This brings us into point three. We need to go fast because we are running low on time. Point three, unity in the body. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So this brings us first off to our humble plea, our humble plea in verse 10. And this is, I plead with you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you would be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
What's going on? Well, there are factions and divisions in the church, and these factions and divisions are devastating the church. This is the reason why in Titus 3, which we just covered fairly recently, a case of church discipline described in Titus 3 is shorter and involves less mercy than either Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 examples. The divisive person in the church in Titus 3 is dealt with more swiftly and more harshly than even the case of incest that's described in 1 Corinthians 5. Why? Because factions in the body of Christ spread like wildfire. Why? Because factions can feel holy. We are the truly holy people because we do this thing. And the other people don't do this thing. Why did I come down so hard on the whole like women's head covering thing like a year ago? Because you can feel really self-righteous while you're doing that and creating a faction and division in the church. You might say, oh, well, we're the holy ones because we don't do the thing that everybody else does. Why does God hate factions so much? Because factions lie about his character. You should be familiar with John 17. In the prayer in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer for his own people, he prays that his people be one even as he and the Father are one. The union within the Trinity is at stake. The picture of it, that's what we're talking about. Factions say that there is a schism in the body of Christ and they say that there is a schism in the mind of God and the persons of the Trinity. Now we know there is not a schism in the mind of God and there is not a schism in the Trinity, but factions say that there is. So it lies about God and that's why it's a big deal. Factions say that God, the Holy Spirit, tells one person one thing and he tells someone else something that contradicts it. Silly example. Oh, God told me we should buy a building on 14th Street. Oh, yeah, well, God told me that our church should be buying a building on 42nd Street. So which is it? Does God have a a split personality and he thinks one thing in one way and tells someone else something else? Can Can God not make up his mind? What happens in factions is it's actually just your desires speaking and it's not God at all. Unless, of course, your lusts are your God. So there's first this humble plea, this plea not to have divisions among you, not to have factions among you. Secondly, we have the whistleblower in verse 11. One commentary says the Corinthian church, like Corinthian society in general, was keenly conscious of social status. Caught up in rivalries, they boasted about their own possessions of wisdom and rhetorical eloquence of their favorite leaders. A point of contention with Paul was his failure to display this status-enhancing rhetoric that was expected of a wise person, a cultured person, worthy of their allegiance. 
Bruce Winter provides a comprehensive picture of first century sophistry that may help explain the behavior of the believers in Corinth with respect to their leaders. It is possible that Apollos' own use of rhetoric in Corinth has incited sophist-style factionalism. Winter argues that Paul's discussion of wisdom in chapters 1-4 through is, in fact, a point-by-point refutation of aspects of sophistic behavior. When sophists came into a city, they broadcast their own repute, extemporized in impressive oral displays, and used persuasive rhetoric with great flair. The spin doctors of their day, the sophists, tried to inspire particular commitment and zeal for themselves among their disciples. When Paul accuses the Corinthian Christians of, namely, quarrels and jealousy, these words, quarrels and jealousy, were actually terms for sophistic discipleship. In other words, he's using technical terms that they would have been familiar with and recognized, oh, he's talking about me. According to Winter, Paul turns all the sophistic and rhetorical terminology on its head. He needs no topic uh, upon which to extemporize and so prove his rhetorical superiority. He already has a message to proclaim. He has no renown, and he used no... Uh, he used oratory characterized by weakness and fear. He inspired confidence or faith, not by power or persuasion or rhetorical skill, but by clear proof of the work of the Spirit in his audience. Paul reverses the pattern of sophistic boasting in chapters 3, 18 through 23, and urges the Corinthians to imitate him and to boast in him, as the sophists did in their leaders, not in impressive and powerful wisdom, but in sufferings and afflictions in the way of the cross, chapter 4, 6 to 20. He warns that rhetoric would empty the CrossFit's power because sophistic methods would overshadow the message itself. Close quote. So, what's happening in verse 11? I plead with you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So these Chloe's people, Chloe's household is a woman who probably was a businesswoman, quite possibly a widower, who has some some connections both in Corinth and in Ephesus. And so her people, who are tradesmen and women going back and forth between these two cities, have brought this report to Paul in Ephesus saying, hey, there's some contention at that church and it's pretty bad. Now I say this to each of you who says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So his case in point, his example of what he's talking about in verses 12 and 13 is these people who have been named himself, Paul, Apollos, another one of these, and Peter, Cephas, Peter is Cephas, and then Christ, which makes this whole situation kind of curious. What is going on? Why is Christ listed? Like, this is Jesus. Why is he listed alongside of two apostles and a light apostle? Is the issue having human leaders? Is Paul saying, the problem is you're following men and you shouldn't be following men? Is that what's going on? It can't be that. That's the wrong conclusion. For why would he say elsewhere, follow me? Further, why would he include Christ as one of the problematic names if the issue is that you shouldn't be following men and Jesus is part of the list? 
You see, the problem isn't the having of leaders. It's the way in which you're following them. So what does this look like practically? What does this look like in our context today? This is the guy who compares every pastor to Paul Washer. I used to be that guy. When I was 17, 18, I was a hardcore cage stage Calvinist and a cage stage Paul Washer fanatic. And the Lord has humbled me in many ways. And one of the ways in which he has done so is by having no less than five people just like this over the last six years who have come at me in very aggressive fashion saying, well, pastor, have you prayed enough this week? Have you fasted enough? How many tracts did you distribute? Your prayers and your sermons just don't bring me into the presence of God like Brother Paul's do. To which I would say, yeah, you know why that is? Because those are rehearsed. He does the same prayer every time he preaches, and it's the same sermon every time he preaches. It's literally an example of powerful rhetoric that is similar to what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 1. The powerful speaker who can evoke a certain emotional response out of his listeners. Paul would say that weak preaching is okay too. But it's not just Paul Washer followers, it's Vody followers, or John Piper followers, or MacArthur followers. Andy, you need to listen to this sermon by Vody. Okay, why is that? Well, because I want you to. I want you to change your beliefs about this thing or that thing, to be more like him, to be more aggressive about the necessity of homeschooling. You just have to push this issue harder because you're not doing it. Oh, okay. I see. Andy, you're, you're all right. You're not bad but Pastor John will always be my pastor. Oh, have you ever met him? No, but man, he's just so great. Let me share his sermon right now in the men's group chat. Andy, Pastor John says it's wrong to defy the government and our church needs to be closed during the pandemic. Oh, oh, really? Andy, Pastor John says that church is essential, so now it's okay for our church to be open. Oh, that's interesting. Or let's shift away from personalities and get a little bit into theological topics. People might say ridiculous and divisive things. People might say things that are not true, and they themselves know they're not true. They might say something like this, well, Baptists are not truly Reformed. So if you call yourself a Reformed Baptist, you're not actually Reformed. So you should let me join your church because you should not be Reformed Baptist, even though I haven't been dunked and this church should actually change to becoming Presbyterian. Oh, and by the way, you're not really Reformed unless you're Amil. This is an R. Scott Clark impersonation, if you didn't catch that. Or a person might say, well, if you're not pre-mill, you don't believe in inerrancy. If a person says that, and I've read people say it online, they know it's not true. The same as someone who says, if you're pre-mill, you're a dispensationalist and you are by necessity a heretic. That's also not true. And the people who say that online are lying and they know they're lying. Same with the person who says, well, if you're not post-mill, you're pessimistic and you don't have biblical faith. It's Christ or chaos. That person knows that's not true too. 
But what happens? Well, we get these slogans and these sayings that we know we can cause a division to try to create a faction unto ourselves. By the way, as an aside, I hope that someday I will hate my sin as much as the post-mill hates the dispensationalist. I would say spend more time on Twitter and that'll make more sense, but don't, don't do it. Don't spend more time on Twitter. So this situation described in our text today with the Christ faction is like the following. Oh, well, I'm above the fray. Y'all have your theological disputes because you're following men, but I'm not like that. I just follow the Bible. I'm a biblicist. You're following Calvin. You're following Arminius. I'm following Christ. That characteristic, that person is also addressed in our text. That type of person does not have the moral and theological high ground. Why? Because pride is a sin as well. The smug arrogance is displeasing to God as well. Looking down your nose at others in the name of being of Christ is not honoring to Christ. So what should we learn then? What's the so what of this issue? I wish there was a way to pack in more things and cover larger sections of scripture even, but we see in 1 Corinthians 3.5, this same book, a summary point about this issue. How do we rightly estimate these earthly leaders, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Peter? Who are these men? Who is Paul? Who then is Apollos? These are servants through whom you believe as the Lord has assigned to each of us. Did you know that God has determined how you would come to faith in Christ and which human person, which human instrument he would use to save you? God has planned all that out. So if God has used John MacArthur in your life in a tremendous way, praise the Lord. That's great. But don't use that to look down your nose smugly at someone else who God used Vodi to bring to faith in Christ. And none of those are better or worse than someone who God used Andy to bring to faith in Christ. God saved you through the ministry of R.C. Sproul? Well, who is he? He's just a servant through whom you believed. So that should pull the rug out from under the arrogance. It should pull the rug out from under the pride and the, the competition and the... factionalism. And then you see in verses 14 through 17, which I've been describing here, Paul is rebuking this in a personal testimony way. I thank God that I baptized none of you. He's speaking in broad, um, in broad ways. He's not being technically precise because then he, he qualifies it three times. I didn't baptize any of you. Okay, well, I baptized some of you. And I baptized some more. And I don't remember who else I baptized. But don't use the person that you are baptized by as a way to condemn others. That's insane. 
It contradicts everything we talked about in point number two, which is that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not of your doing, not of your performance or your virtue or your merit or your righteousness or even the person that you're following or who your pastor is or who your apostle is or any of that stuff. So when you start bringing that stuff up as though you have the moral high ground, that is the definition of being carnal. But we're not going to talk about that today because that's not in today's text. So remember that in future sermons. Let's close with prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us as we have begun this book, this series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I pray for your help in future weeks that you would use these messages to cultivate a spirit of humility in our church and to cultivate unity and to protect and guard the unity of the body and the bond of peace by your spirit. I pray that you would save the lost and that you would continue to build, protect, and guard your church. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.